The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss Nyx, a primordial deity in the personification of night, one of the most powerful goddesses, if not the most powerful goddess, in all of Greek mythology. First, we're going to look at what Greek mythology has to say about Nyx, which can be broken down into three parts. Nyx's role in the creation myth, given in Hesiod's Theogony, information about Nyx's dark and shadowy house at the edge of creation, and some information about the Trojan War that dovetails into Nyx's near confrontation with Zeus, in which she protects her son Hypnos and basically scares the king of the gods away. After covering Nyx's mythology, we are going to wrap the video up by comparing Nyx and Zeus to see which of the two is more powerful, to see whether one passage from the Iliad that says, Night that can overpower all gods and mortal men, holds any water. I've included a couple timestamps in the description, so if you're not interested in hearing about the creation myth, a topic already covered by this channel, or if you just click for the Nyx versus Zeus comparison, you can skip ahead. Let's get into it. Chaos, the great void, was the first deity to come into existence, self-created and emerging from literally nothing. Chaos was all the empty space that necessarily had to exist for creation to begin. Subsequently, a series of self-created deities then materialized. These were Gaia, the Earth, Tartarus, the abyssal chasm beneath the earth, a great pit existing as a sort of mirrored reflection of the sky, though the sky was yet to be born, and Eros, the personification of sexual desire, the power that permeated the universe and permitted the phenomenon of procreation, whether from a union between two gods, as would happen later, or from independent procreation, also called parthenogenesis, derived from the Greek word for virgin birth a mode of reproduction that applied to Chaos, who independently produced two primordial deities, Nyx and Erebus, as well to Gaia, who independently produced various physical aspects of the material world, namely Uria, mountains, Pontus, the sea, and Uranus, the sky. From the union between Nyx, the personification of night, and Erebus, the personification of darkness, came two children, a son, Ether, the personification of the bright upper atmosphere, and a daughter, Hemera, the personification of day. Incarnating the dichotomy of day and night, both Nyx and her daughter Hemera occupy the same dwelling, a remote house located at the edge of the world. They never coincide, meaning they're never at home at the same time. When Nyx is at home, it's daytime, and conversely, when Hemera is home, it's nighttime. In Hesiod's Theogony, the location of this dwelling is said to be near the entrance to Tartarus, where the Titans are imprisoned, a place made both impregnable and inescapable by layers of security, including towering walls, a pair of giant bronze doors, and unassailable jailkeepers, the three Hecatonchires, a trio of incredibly powerful monsters nearly unsurpassed in size and strength, each one with 50 heads and 100 arms. Per the words of Hesiod, where the gates of Tartarus are located seem to be a sort of nexus point 
where the farthest and most inaccessible points of many aspects of creation intersect. Among them, the edge of the sea, the edge of the sky, where Atlas holds the vault of the heavens upon his shoulders, and the edge of the earth. The house of Nyx is described as a fearful house shrouded in dark clouds and a light-eating blackness. Here's the passage. And there are the sources and extremities of dark earth and misty Tartarus, of the undraining sea and the starry heaven, all in order, dismal and dank, that even the gods shudder at. And there stands the fearful house of gloomy night, shrouded in clouds of blackness. Next to that, Atlas stands holding the broad heaven firmly upon his head and untiring hands, where night and day approach and greet each other as they cross the great threshold of bronze. One goes in, one comes out, and the house never holds them both inside, but always there is one of them outside the house ranging the earth, while the other waits inside the house until the time comes for her to go. One carries far-seeing light for those on earth, but the other baleful night. In addition to Aether and Hemera, Nyx, through Parthenogenesis, also independently produced an array of other children, who, for the most part, account for a great number of the forces and phenomena that define what it is to be human, what the experience of our short time on Earth is like, the good and the bad. These children include Moros, impending doom, the inexorable force that led people to their inevitable ends, Keres, spirits or goddesses of violent death, Thanatos, death itself, Hypnos, sleep, the Oniri, dreams, Momus, mockery and blame, Giris, old age, Oisis, misery, distress, suffering and woe, Nemesis, divine retribution, Philotes, affection, Apati, guile, deceit and deception, Eris, discord and strife, and the Mori, goddesses of fate. The Trojan War was an event of such magnitude that it went far beyond the mortal men who fought in it, even reaching upwards to the lofty height of Olympus and creating a schism amongst the gods. Whether Troy or Greece held the advantage at a particular time was largely contingent on which side was better supported by the gods. Acting as arbiter, Zeus by turn allowed the gods to join the fighting or force them to leave the fray, ensuring that the Trojan War progressed within the parameters that fate had ordained. Consequently, superiority on the battlefield oscillated between both sides. Both Poseidon and Hera were among the gods who backed the Greeks. Poseidon because he was treated badly by the previous Trojan king, Priam's father, and Hera because Paris spurned her by selecting Aphrodite as the most beautiful goddess. Hera wished for Poseidon to join the fighting and help the Greeks, but she knew that he could not do so while Zeus watched, so she quickly contrived a cunning plan. She used every beautifying art and technique at her disposal to make herself irresistible, and she went to Aphrodite, who championed the Trojans, under false pretenses, tricking the goddess into bestowing her with the power to strike men with overpowering lust. Like this, she went to her husband and took him to bed, completely taking his attention away from the war. As they lay together after making love, Hypnos, who was hiding in a nearby tree disguised as a bird, ensnared Zeus's mind with sleep, which takes us back to a conversation that happened earlier. Hera knew that her womanly wiles, 
even augmented by Aphrodite as they were, would only take Zeus away from the Trojan War for so long. In order for Poseidon to enter the battle and really do some damage without Zeus promptly ordering him to leave, she came to the conclusion that her husband would have to be incapacitated in some way for an extended period of time. The plan she decided on was to lull Zeus to sleep while he luxuriated in post-coital bliss. But the power to induce sleep was not one she commanded, so she needed Hypnos on her side. The god of sleep wasn't immediately enlisted into Hera's service, for he was initially resistant to what she proposed, citing what happened the last time he put Zeus to sleep, the result of which was him entering the crosshairs of Zeus's wrath. Here's the passage from the Iliad that describes this. A commission of yours taught me my lesson once, the day that Heracles, the insolent son of Zeus, sailed out of Troy, having raised her to the ground. And then I put the brain of thundering Zeus to sleep, pouring myself in a soft, soothing slumber around him. But you in your anger, you were bent on trouble, whipping a howling killer squall across the sea, bearing Heracles off to the crowded town of Kos, far from all his friends. But Zeus woke up, furious, flinging immortal gods about his house to hunt for me. I was the culprit, the worst of all, and out of the skies he would have sunk me in the sea, wiped me from sight, if night had failed to save me, old night that can overpower all gods and mortal men. I reached her in flight and father called it quits despite his towering anger. True, Zeus shrank from doing a thing to outrage rushing night, but now you are back, Hera. You ask me to do the impossible once again. Hera eventually won Hypnos to her side, first coaxing him, ensuring that Zeus did not love and favor the Trojans to the same extent he did Hercules, his own son, then promising him what the god of sleep asked as payment for his services, Pasithea, one of the younger graces, whom Hypnos had lusted after for days uncounted. This is a very interesting passage because it calls into question the extent of Zeus's power. Could it be that Zeus, the god who led Olympus to victory over the Titans and the Giants, the god who defeated Typhon, the most powerful monster in Greek mythology, wasn't actually the supreme power in the universe he ruled over? Well, to answer this, we are going to compare them by looking at power as a dichotomy of creation and destruction. Addressing creation, this isn't where Zeus's power lies. He's a conqueror and a ruler much more than he is a creator. Yes, with the exception of Oceanus, who fathered the 3,000 Oceanids, and fathered all the rivers of the world, no other god has sired more divine children than Zeus, making him a creator of sorts, I suppose. However, in this respect, Nyx is on a completely different level. For as was said earlier in the video, she independently produced the majority of her children through parthenogenesis, which, in terms of raw creative power, has to be viewed as head and shoulders above being a philanderer who gallivants around impregnating people. Making the case for Zeus, he did give birth to Athena when she emerged from his skull after Hephaestus struck his head with a great cleaving blow from an axe. But even here, he didn't independently conceive for he himself in a way became impregnated, more or less taking on the reproductive role of a surrogate, when he swallowed his then-wife Metis, who was herself pregnant with their first child at the time. Addressing destruction, 
The passage read earlier puts Nyx's power in no ambiguous terms, saying she can overpower all gods and men, and Zeus shrank from doing a thing to outrage rushing night. This passage, taken by itself without the broader context of the vast mosaic that is Greek mythology, definitely gives the impression that Nyx is more powerful than Zeus. This passage, though, stands at odds with virtually everything else Greek mythology has to say, which is that Zeus's strength in combat dwarfs that of any other god, a fact demonstrated by this passage from Hesiod's Theogony. Now Zeus held in his strength no longer. Straightway his lungs were filled with fury, and he began to display his full might. From heaven and from Olympus together he came, with continuous lightning flashes, and the bolts flew thick and fast from his stalwart hand amid thunder and lightning, trailing supernatural flames. All around, the life-bearing earth rumbled as it burned, and the vast woodlands crackled loudly on every side. The whole land was seething, and the streams of Oceanus and the undraining sea. The hot blasts enveloped the thonic titans, and indescribable flames reached the divine sky, and the sparkling flare of the thunderbolt and the lightning dazzled the strongest eyes. An amazing conflagration prevailed over the chasm. There's also the passage in the Iliad in which Zeus vehemently explains that he is stronger than all the other Olympians combined. Then he will know how far my power tops all their gods. Come, try me immortals, so all of you can learn. Hang a great golden cable down from the heavens. Lay hold of it, all you gods, all goddesses too. You can never drag me down from sky to earth. Not Zeus, the highest, mightiest king of kings. Not even if you worked yourselves to death. But whenever I'd set my mind to drag you up, in deadly earnest, I'd hoist you all with ease. You and the earth, you and the sea, all together. Then loop that golden cable around a horn of Olympus. Bind it fast and leave the whole world dangling in midair. That is how far I tower above the gods. I tower over men. Just as Zeus didn't independently produce any children, so does Nyx not have any combat achievements to her name. This coupled with the fact that Zeus is consistently presented as the most powerful destructive force in existence throughout Greek mythology doesn't really add up to a compelling argument for Nyx being able to defeat Zeus in single combat. As well, there are other reasons for not wanting to fight someone than thinking you would be defeated by them. An example that came to mind is when a wolverine stands its ground and chases off a much larger predator. Could a bear kill a wolverine if it really wanted to? Sure, but the sheer ferocity of the wolverine and the prospect of suffering some damage in the process make the bear back off. Perhaps this was the case with Nyx. Zeus knew he could defeat her, but he also knew that he would suffer some damage in the process, this leading him to think about the pros and cons of thrashing Hypnos weighing the satisfaction of beating Hypnos within a hair of death against the effort needed to overcome a formidable opponent and against potentially incurring a healthy dose of physical punishment for his trouble. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.